being the church. Uh, I can't think of anything. I really can't. I can't think of anything more important than for us as the church to understand what it means to be the church. And so, last week we began this series. We looked at Acts 2 and how the church was devoted to some different things. To fellowship. To evangelism. To worship. And as I was thinking about that in terms of where we would go this week with that, way back when I first began outlining this series and, and gave the messages to, to Kay, I thought the first place we need to start is with worship. Worship. And the question that we need to answer is what or who do you worship? You say, well, that's a rather crazy thing. No, it's not. It's really not. Because we're talking about what do we give our ultimate allegiance to. Not what do we do on Sunday mornings once a week. It's what are we committing ourselves to as people. Jesus Himself addressed the issue back in Luke chapter 16, verse 13. And here's what He said. He said, No servant can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. The old King James said, God and mammon. But it's, it's money, it's wealth, it's possessions, it's material things. And there are a lot of people who are totally worshiping stuff. They are more concerned with their retirement than they are with their eternal future. They invest more in their retirement. They watch things regarding to their retirement more than they do thinking about and discussing what are we doing in terms of preparing us for life after death. The closest I've seen to taking it with you when you die is a picture of a hearse that was pulling a U-Haul trailer. Now, I'm convinced that they weren't going to where the ultimate destiny of the body in the, in the hearse was, if there even was one, but we can't take it with us. Paul picks up the theme. It was an important question from the aspect of what is or what has us under control or what is it that we submit ourselves to. Romans chapter 16, verses 17 to 19. Paul writes, But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin 
and become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And, having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. And then he goes on a little bit later to say, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness leading to sanctification. Did you notice that he uses the word slaves on both aspects? It's a word of ultimate allegiance, ultimate loyalty, ultimate devotion, ultimate service. Are you serving sin or are you serving righteousness? And, and there doesn't really seem to be any in-between ground to speak of in the writings of Paul. It's light and darkness. Same way with John. You're either walking in the light or you're walking in the darkness. So my question remains, who or what do you worship? And it's a very important question that each one of us needs to answer on an individual basis. I, I am one of those who likes Eugene Peterson. I like the stuff he has written. I even enjoy using the message for devotional reading. The message is his translation of the Bible. I enjoy it because I know that Eugene Peterson is a Greek and Hebrew scholar. And I enjoy it because I know that what the message is wasn't originally done to pre prepare a translation for people. The message began as his attempt to take the Word of God that he was preaching on given Sundays and translate it into something that his congregation could understand. And when somebody caught wind of those being out there, they said, hey, why don't you bring those together into one? And that's how the message came to be. It wasn't Eugene Peterson's desire to translate a Bible and become well known for making a translation. It was his desire to serve his congregation. But I like what he's written at one point. He said the most important thing a pastor does is stand in a pulpit every Sunday and say, let us worship God. And then he went on a little bit later to say, if that ceases to be the primary thing I do in terms of energy, my imagination, and the way I structure my life, then I no longer function as a pastor. That hit home to me. Is the majority of what I am doing as the pastor of this flock helping to prepare you to be worshiping. And again, I repeat, not just this hour and 15 minutes on Sunday mornings. But worshiping with your whole life. You see, worship is our foremost. It's our primary it's, it's what John Stott speaks of in the little book that I've encouraged you to read, uh, The Living Church. It was, it's what he says is our preeminent duty. He says, this being so, namely that worship is the church's preeminent duty, we should surely give it our closest attention. Worship. 
Now, I personally think the preeminence of worship is seen in the very structure of the model prayer that Jesus gave us. It was a part of His Sermon on the Mount. He repeated the same model on another occasion when His disciples said, Hey, John's disciples know how to pray. Teach us to pray. And so He gave the model. How does that model prayer begin? It begins, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. What is the beginning of the model prayer? Praising and worshiping God. And it comes before, give us this day our daily bread. What a tragedy that Chicago has to say, well, it's come to the point where we need to pray. That's where it should have started. In a city that has stricter gun controls than any other city in the nation and has more fatalities from unlicensed, unregistered guns every weekend than anywhere else. You can't do it by legislation. You've got to change people and you've got to change their hearts. And that's why I've said as a retired police officer, gun control doesn't work. It's not the guns that kill people. It's the people pulling the triggers. So that's just what we're talking about. What do we mean? What is worship? Well, again, I, I point back to that little book. That I've got three copies of it still, by the way. If anybody wants one, uh, they only cost the church $15. If nobody gets them, I'll put them in our church library. But in that little book called The Living Church, John Stott says perhaps the best scriptural definition of worship is found in Psalm 105, verse 3. Uh, so let's look at what he's pointing at. Let's go to God's Word. Psalm 105, verses 1 to 5. Oh, give thanks to the Lord. Call upon His name. Make, His deed, make known His deed among the peoples. Sing to Him. Sing praises to Him. Tell of all His wondrous works. Glory in His holy name. Let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. Seek the Lord in His strength. Seek His presence continually. Remember, us, remember the wondrous works that He has done. His miracles and the judgments He uttered. Worship is not just standing and singing. Man, the hair on the back of my neck goes up and bristles every time I'm in a big conference and I hear a worship leader say, Alright now, it's come time. For time of worship, let's stand and let's sing. Well, worship is when we're giving our money. Worship is when we're meeting around the table. Worship is when we're hearing God's Word. It's not just singing. And in this verse, verse 3, the stop points to, he says, worship is glory in His holy name. Now the model prayer begins that way. But how many of us, to be honest with yourself, don't raise your hand, how many of us just pause once in a while and just say, oh God, just thank you so much. You're, even just your name. Yahweh. Jehovah. Lord of Lord. 
hallowed be thy name. And so, not only is it to glory in his name, but Stott goes on to say that true worship is biblical, it's congregational, it's spiritual, and it's moral. And it, what he means by that moral is in the sense that it's not just what's in our heads, but it also has to be in our hearts and expressed by upright moral living. I've chosen this morning as my text a, a kind of an interesting story from the Old Testament. As they're starting to go back and rebuild Jerusalem, digging through the rubble, trying to get things broken down so they can rebuild, guess what they find? They find a copy of the Torah, the book of Moses. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And when they find that, they come excited. I thought about that yesterday. Because I already had my sermon prepared. I thought about that yesterday when the young man who was on the moped picked up that Bible, looked at it, opened it, and then held it close to his heart. Not some piece of stoneware that if I look on Google, I might find out that it's worth some money or some other tremendous find. No. The Bible. And of all things, for those of you that decided to go with the read through the Bible this year, remember how hard it was to get through especially Numbers and Leviticus and Deuteronomy? They found a copy of the book of Moses. And we can read about it in Nehemiah chapter 8. And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra, the scribe, they who? What's the antecedent of that pronoun? It's grammar lesson time. We need to read the Bible carefully. What's the antecedent of that pronoun? Can't be the gate. The people. The people who had come together as one, they told Ezra the scribe, bring out that book that was found, the book, the law of Moses, that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women, and all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month. They even noted what day it was. That's how important it was to them. And he read from it facing the square before the water gate. From early morning until midday. In the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. 
And Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform that had been made for that very purpose. And beside him stood Mattathiah, Shema, Ananiah, Uriah, Hilkiah, and Maaseiah on his right. And Padiah, Mishael, Malchijah, Hashem, and Hashbadadon, Zechariah, and Meshulam on his left. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of the people, for he was above the people on that wooden stand they made. And as he opened it, all the people stood. Now listen to me. What did it say in terms of how long they were out there from when to when? Morning until midday. And what are they doing? They're standing as he's reading the Word of God. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God. And all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. May God add His blessing to our reading of His Word. Point one. They assembled. They gathered together as one person. And I don't feel any problem with changing that from man to person because it goes on to say women, men, and children. It's a generic as one person, one man. They were in unity. This is what John Stott referred to as the congregational aspect of worship. It's the church, the ecclesia. That word means called out of. Ek, out of. Ecclesia, the call. The ones who are called out of. The called ones. It's the church coming together in unity to worship God. I love Hebrews chapter 10. It's one of my go-to passages. In fact, if I'm somewhere and somebody says, hey, our speaker can't show up, could you give us a message this evening? I say, yeah. Hebrews 10 is one of my default passages. I like to call it my veg vegetable or vegetarian sermon. Because over and over again in those verses, well, you listen. Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. A whole lot of lettuce thrown in there. This is a good salad sermon. But then listen to what the writer of Hebrews says. And let us not neglect to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. As the church, the bride of Christ, the body of Christ, we're to be gathering together in unity and in love, motivating and encouraging one another to be about the business to be involved in the ministry, 
to be doing the works of the church. It is the us. It's not a you go. You second person singular. It is a you go second person plural. But it's not a you individually go bow your head or look to the heavens in isolation from others. Yes, a person can experience God in solitude. But relational encounters with God are not what the Bible is speaking of in terms of worship. The Bible is talking about the church coming together to not only relate to God, but to relate to one another. When Jesus was asked, what's the greatest commandment? Remember what He said? The great Shema. To love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. But then what, what, did He stop there? No! Because it's not just a vertical thing. It's also a horizontal thing. And the second is likened to it. Love your neighbor as yourself. If you don't have the horizontal plane right, you can't have the vertical plane right. Throughout the book of Romans, Paul is very concerned about the tension that exists between the Gentile Christians and the Jewish Christians. And he emphasizes over and over again that they needed to be both working together and they needed to be worshiping together as one. In fact, Romans chapter 15, verses 5 to 7. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Worship. Remember Psalm 105, verse 3? That you together may do that. And then he goes on in verse 7, Therefore welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. It's to be about assembling. Have you ever heard what happened to Gandhi? Gandhi was here in the United States studying. And he went to a church in New York City to worship one Sunday. And he was told at the door we have another church just two blocks down for your kind of people. They were sending him to another Christian church, but also they were giving the message what? You are not welcome here. And Gandhi went on at one point to say, I love the message and the teaching of Jesus, but I don't like His church. And why not? Look around. We're pretty lily white this morning. And we don't live in a lily white community. 
We live in a community that has Latinos from Guatemala. We have Hispanics. We have blacks. Why have we become such a lily white congregation? I don't know. But I suspect it has something to do with how in the past one or more of our people have treated others. Community. Secondly, there's not only the assembling, gathering together as one, but I think in this passage focused on worship, we also see what the agenda was. True worship is biblical worship. And what, what we're talking about there is to say that true worship is a response to the biblical revelation. In our text from Nehemiah, the people of God were hungry for His Word. They were interested in what the Bible had to say. Do you know that this morning, across the nation, there are a lot of churches that will not refer to a page of the Bible in the morning message. There will be book studies, book reviews. There will be nice, encouraging, devotional messages. There's a large, massive church in Texas where the minister has very openly said, Oh, I don't talk about sin and the devil. I don't want to get people discouraged. <clears throat> Folks, we need to be preaching the Bible. We need to be teaching the Bible. We need to be devoted to learning the Bible. We cannot be God's people if we are not people of God's book. Their agenda was to, to get that Bible out. And to, they were interested in what it had to say. Uh, they've been in captivity. They didn't enjoy the privileges of biblical worship and instruction there. They were hungry. And so we're told Ezra read from the Word of God from morning until Midday. In fact, in Nehemiah 9, we're told once more that they read a fourth of the day, a quarter of the day, and they confessed and worshipped a quarter of the day. Half of the day. They weren't concerned about time. They weren't concerned about wanting to get finished or get to the restaurant before the crowds got there. They were focused on God's Word. And that led them to a change of attitude. Verse 3 of chapter 9 tells us about the change in their attitude. They made confession and worshipped the Lord their God. Think about it. Standing in place for a fourth of the day, hearing the Word of God, then for a fourth of the day, they confessed. Now I don't know about you, but I know about me. That wouldn't be hard for me to do. I'm not perfect. I make a lot of mistakes. And I could spend probably the fourth of a day talking to God about all the mistakes I made this last week. But my Bible says unless I do confess my faults and unless I confess my faults to one another, that's how James says that 
Forgiveness takes place. Healing takes place. You see, they were committed. In the words of Acts 2.42, they were devoting themselves to worship. Now, don't tell me I'm wrong because I know better. People will walk around shopping malls. They'll walk around flea markets. They walked around this town for the last three days. Or they'll walk around state out fairs for hours. Many people today will go to a ball game and they'll talk about how great it was if the game went into overtime. Or if it was a baseball game, if it went into extra innings. But these people in Nehemiah were having church. They were having a revival. They were getting their hearts right with God. And nowhere is it mentioned that Ezra was pleading and prodding with them. They came willingly and they confessed before God. Now can you imagine a response like that in our day? Now, these people were serious about the Lord. They didn't want anything to stand between them and God. But listen to me. If you happen to be reading Stott's book, The Living Church, you should remember how he also emphasized that our worship has to be spiritual. We can't just be going through the motions. I like the way Stott reminded his readers in about how in the 8th and 7th and 6th century B.C. prophets, I know I went backwards because that's forward in B.C. Those prophets very openly denounced. They very openly rejected the formalism and the hypocrisy of their day. And Jesus applied their critique to the Pharisees of His day. Who were they really worshiping? And Jesus quotes Isaiah 29.13 when He says in Mark, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites. As it is written, They honor Me with their lips, but their heart is far from Me. In vain do they worship Me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Now, you're intelligent and reasonable people. You tell me, is our worship more ritual? Ritual without reality? How many people would be upset? They might not say anything, but you see the humps and you see the little whispers to the one next to them or whatever might take place. How many would be upset if we totally changed the order of service one Sunday without announcing it? Is our worship form without power? It's been a long time other than last Sunday. But it's a long time before I've heard some amens. Yeah, that's right. We've heard it last week and this week. Is there a lot of fun instilled in a lot of worship services where there is no fear, no awe, no wonder of what God has done? Is the focus of what we do 
better defined by the word religion than by the word relationship. Let's pray. Father God, help us. Help us to be revived. Help us to realize that there is nothing on this dusty planet. No houses, no cars. Not even family that we can allow to come between us and You for the sake of our eternal destiny. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be Your name. Amen.